Let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In your Bibles, we're continuing in our study through the Sermon on the Mount, which takes up Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It is uh, the longest recorded sermon of Jesus in the Bible, and it is called the Sermon on the Mount because he delivers it on a hillside on the slopes of the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. So let me take you by way of pictorial background. This is the northern slope of the Sea of Galilee where it is believed Jesus delivered this sermon. I'm a little um, uh, sad right now because tomorrow was supposed to be our trip to Israel, those of you who registered, and so I was going to be here tomorrow, but now just only a picture behind me. Uh, But we had 300 people who had registered for this trip, and then, of course, COVID changed a lot of things in people's lives, so it got canceled and rescheduled to 2021, and so I'm giving those 300 people the first option for the new dates, Um, but then we'll open it up and and see um, if you would like to go with us, and if hopefully things will be better by uh, 2021 in August and September 2021. So anyhow, this is the pictorial background for our sermon out of Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches for us. And I'm going to read uh, from this sixth chapter, first 18 verses, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll talk about this first half of chapter 6. So here's what Jesus said. Verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray... You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words." Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not let us lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you... When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Let's pause there and pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word that we can open and hold on our laps and 
uh, read these words that Jesus declared some 2,000 years ago that are still timeless truth for us today. And we pray that you would help us to apply these things that we hear so that we would not be guilty of hearing only, but not doing what it says. May we be hearers and doers, Lord. And we thank you for your grace and your love in our lives. And for those of us who know you in a personal way, we just want to be stretched in our walk with you that we would be more like Jesus. And for those here today or those watching online who don't make a profession of faith, they don't know you, maybe they're just here out of curiosity, a friend invited them, or they're just interested. Lord, I pray that um, the eyes of their hearts would be open to see who you are, that they would receive you as Lord and Savior. So we commit our Bible study to you now. We're thankful for your grace and your love and your mercy in our lives. Be with us now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, the first half of chapter 6 that I just read, here Jesus introduces to us what we call three disciplines of the Christian faith. Now, don't let that scare you off. Here, by way of a definition, is what a spiritual discipline is. Spiritual disciplines are simply habits, practices, and experiences that are designed to develop, grow, and strengthen one's spirit to build the muscles, if you will, of one's character as a follower of Christ. Now, there's not a prescribed list in the Bible, one, two, three, four, here are the disciplines of the faith that Christians are supposed to follow. But when you look throughout Scripture, we can glean from instruction and from example different spiritual disciplines. They're not only three, but these are three that Jesus highlights for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so these are the three that we're going to look at. He highlights giving, praying, and fasting. And so I'm going to talk first about three things that Jesus says each of these have in common together, and then we'll circle back and take a brief look at each of them. But first, here are the things that Jesus says that these three disciplines have in common. The first one is that Jesus assumes we are already doing these things, because in verses 2, 5, and 16, when he talks about giving, praying, and fasting, he uses the words, when you, not if you, when you. He already assumes that we are going to be doing these things. And so in chapter two, uh, rather in chapter six, verse two, as it relates to giving, Jesus says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed. In verse five, in regards to praying, he says, and when you pray. In verse 16, in regards to fasting, he says, moreover, when you fast. So you might just want to underline in your Bibles or highlight in your electronic Bibles that verse 2, 5, and 16, where he uses the word when, when you do a charitable deed, when you pray, when you fast. Jesus bypasses if you are doing these things, and he goes straight to when you do these things. Because as far as Jesus is concerned, it's not a question of if. It's about how and why you should be doing these things. In other words, in what way are we practicing these disciplines and with what motive? We'll get into that a little bit as we go through this text here. But first, the implication here of the words by Jesus, when you do these things, is that these disciplines are a given. Every follower of Christ should be giving, should be praying, and should be fasting with some kind of regularity as part of the habits of the Christian life. Now, listen, not as religious rituals, 
This, this is not like, okay, in order to be a really good person, you better do this, this, and this. But again, this is for the benefit of us as believers that when we practice these things, it strengthens our souls and it draws us closer to the Lord. So in regards to giving, in regards to praying, in regards to fasting, these should all be regular habits of the Christian life. Uh, Jude, in his little epistle right before the book of Revelation, um, Jude in verse 20 says, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And one of the ways that we can build ourselves up in our faith is by practicing spiritual disciplines like giving, praying, and fasting. The second thing that all three of these have in common that Jesus points out by the way that he repeats different phrases here is number two, that these things should be done discreetly. And he uses the phrase in secret for each of these three disciplines. In verse 4, in regards to giving, he says that your charitable deed may be in secret. He uses the same phrase in verse 6 when he talks about praying. He says, pray to your father who is, who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret. And then also with fasting in verse 18. Jesus says, do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret. So there is this emphasis here on these three disciplines on doing these things that build us up in our faith as a way of connecting with our Father in heaven, not as a way to draw attention to ourselves or to somehow try to impress people that we are more spiritual. So Jesus is telling us, listen, no fanfare, no drawing attention. Don't be doing these things to help people make them think that you're more spiritual. That's why he says here, for example, in regards to giving, that's why Jesus says that when you give, don't announce it with trumpets. And he says in the section about giving, he says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, these are idioms. These are expressions. Today, we would say it like this. Hey, keep it on the down low. You know what I'm saying to you? Down low. Like, don't let anybody know you're doing these things. And we also use this expression about, you know, don't, don't blow your own horn. Don't sound your own trumpet. You know, don't draw attention to yourself. That's what Jesus is saying about this. And same thing about praying in verse 5 when he said, For the hypocrites love to stand to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by man. I mean, picture this. You had these religious leaders in Jesus' day on the street corner, just in the middle of town, just being like, oh God, I beseech you. You know, that's what these guys were doing because they wanted attention. They wanted people to go, oh, wow, look how spiritual that dude is praying on the corner of King and Market Street. Man, what a Christian. What a believer. Don't do that. Okay, don't do that. Now, listen, Jesus is not opposed to public corporate prayer, okay? What he's opposed to is when people do it for show, when they do it to draw attention to themselves, when they want people to think that they're more spiritual than they really are. Otherwise, what Jesus says here regarding prayer is, go into your rooms, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, discreetly. Just get alone with the Lord. Don't try to do this for public attention. And this is important for us to ask ourselves, do we give because we want people to see how generous we are? Do we pray out loud somewhere because we want people to see how spiritual we are? These are the questions we need to be asking ourselves because Jesus is confronting the motivation of our hearts in regards to these disciplines. 
Are we doing these things unto the Lord, or are we doing these things sometimes to impress other people? Same thing about fasting in the section about fasting in verse 16. Jesus says, hypocrites go around with a sad countenance and disfigure their faces so that they might impress people with their fasting. And in Jesus' day, check this out, people would actually throw dirt or ashes on their heads to announce to people that they were fasting, to look all, you know, downtrodden. And then they go around like, "Mm, why the downtrodden face? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fasting. Oh, you are? Yeah, you know, me and the Lord, that's how we connect. I just fast a lot and throw ashes on my face. Oh, that's really spiritual of you. No, Jesus says, don't, don't go around doing that kind of thing. It was all for a show. And then the third thing that he says these disciplines have in common, number three, is that these things will be rewarded by the Lord. He tells us in verse four in regards to giving, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. In regards to praying, in verse 6, he says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And in regards to fasting, same thing in verse 18. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And so Jesus promises not only are there intrinsic benefits to the spiritual disciplines of giving, praying, and fasting, but he says, check it out, I'm going to actually reward you in addition. Now, the Bible doesn't say how and what form that reward comes, we don't, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Is it in our lifetime or is it some kind of reward we receive when we're with him in heaven? We don't know. The Bible is silent about how it's actually dispensed, but Jesus makes the promise that we will be rewarded for developing these habits in our lives. So let's circle back real quickly and just look at each of these, giving and praying and fasting, and understand a little bit about the how and the why. And in regards to giving, first, in the section on giving, in the New King James that I'm reading from, Jesus talks about doing your charitable deeds. If you read from NIV or the ESV, it says when it translates those words, it says specifically, when you give to the needy. And the original Greek language is the word elemasune, and elemasune means charitable giving or compassionate acts toward the needy. So I I don't want to make, you'll be relieved to know, I don't want to make this into any kind of a sermon of like, well, you need to give more to the church and tithes and offerings, because that's not the actual context. The context here about giving is Jesus talking about being specific regarding being generous towards the needy. Now that said, we are able to help the needy in our community because of your generosity Uh, through the church. So I just want to take a moment to say thank you for that, because especially during this time of COVID with this virus, uh, I just so appreciate how you all have really stepped up your generosity, not just in financial giving, but in your generosity of serving with your time and your resources to, to really help the needy in our community through our outreach ministry. And it's, a, it's been a blessing to see literally thousands of people in our community being helped who really have genuine needs because of your generosity. So I thank you and I commend you and I praise God for you. And you can give yourselves a hand because you, you've been generous in many ways uh, for all that you're doing. Uh, you know, uh, recently we um, were a part of a um, a, a, few, a food distribution here in our parking lot called Farmers to Families. 
Um, and it's really in conjunction with the federal government. I, I was actually mowing my lawn and I get a call from a liaison in the White House. They have your numbers, friends. Let me just tell you right now. And, um, and, you know, and I was asked, hey, can your church be a part of this farmers to family program? Well, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I was kind of ignorant about what the program was. And so they had to explain it to me. Here's the way it works. Because of COVID, farmers had all this excess produce uh, and, uh, you know, in terms of uh, fruits and vegetables and then even livestock like excess chickens and all this stuff because schools were shut down. So they didn't need to supply food for cafeterias. Uh, major stadium events were shut down. So they didn't need to supply food for major events. And so farmers had all this extra food that they were just going to throw out. The federal government stepped in through the program called Farmers to Families. $3 billion the president um, released for this program. And he just released another $1 billion a couple weeks ago. And, and here's how the program works. The federal government steps in, pays farmers for their pr- produce and livestock so that they don't go to waste, and then will distribute it to families who are in need, especially right now because a lot of people have lost their jobs. But the problem is the federal government's a big bureaucracy. How do you get all the food from the farmers into the hands of the needy people. So actually, it became the heart for Ivanka Trump. And she said, how about we involve the faith community? How about we get churches involved in being the boots on the ground, if you will, to be able to use volunteers to take the food from the farmers. If we bring tractor trailers of, of food, then the churches can take the food and actually distribute it in their communities to people who have needs. So I get this phone call and I'm like, I'm being asked in 48 hours, can we have two tractor trailers at your church and you distribute to needy families? Well, what am I going to say? No. Of course, I'm going to say yes. And then I'm thinking, of course, we could do this. And then I call Mike Frick, our pastor of outreach. Mike, we're in a bind, man. I don't know how we are going to do this. Because two tractor trailers and, and there was a box of uh, perishable items like uh, milk and chicken and cheese and butter. And then there was uh, uh, 22 pounds of it. And there's 22 pounds of non-perishable fruits and vegetables. And every family who had a need would get one box of each. And they'd leave with 44 pounds of food. And it didn't cost us as a church a dime. And it helped farmers and it helped needy families. And we just became boots on the ground. And we could be a part of the joy of, of seeing needy families benefit. And so, um, so, so, you know, praise God, you guys stepped it up and we had a lot of volunteers here and, um, and we were able to do that. Um, and since then they've asked us, can you do this regularly? So if you're interested in helping, we have another distribution coming up this Friday on the 18th and you can just text, uh, us outreach at cornerstonechapel.net. If you're interested in, in helping, um, that's us, no no uh, punctuation, just the letters U.S. Outreach at cornerstonechapel.net. And, um, and if, if we can't use you this Friday on September the 18th, we have another distribution in October. And, and we're going to continue to do this as long as the program is available to help our community. And so it's just a, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to be generous. Why? Because God has been generous to us. And we have to be mindful of the fact that in general, when it comes to giving, whether it's acts of service or whether it's time and resources or whether it's finances, that it should be done because we love Jesus and we love people. 
and, and that when we understand as believers, see, this is the mindset, you know, being a Christian is a, is a different mindset from what the world, it's, it's not like the world isn't consistent with some biblical principles at all. It's just that there are times when you're going to find as a believer that your principles are very, very different from the rest of the world's standard. And when we realize as believers that everything that we possess, everything that we have, has come from the beneficent hand of our Father in heaven, then we should be eager to be generous to others. Because every good and perfect gift has come down from our Father in heaven. And so we just want to be conduits of it, and we just want to be generous, and we want to, we want to be giving people. And so when Jesus talks here about giving and not letting your left hand know what your right is doing and don't announce it with trumpets. You know, he's, he's like, don't do it for show and don't do it for attention, but be generous people and help the needy and serve people as best as you can according to your resources and your ability. So that's in the area of giving. Now, when you look at the section here on prayer, the section on prayer here includes a, a section that is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Or if you have a Catholic background, you refer to it as the Our Father, right? And so this prayer here, look, there's been many books written on the Lord's Prayer. A lot of good resources out there. So I'm not going to try to dissect all the, the nuances of what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. But what I would like to simply do is to highlight the elements of his prayer and then focus on the beginning verse and the end verse around the Lord's Prayer. There, there are some verses like bookends around the Lord's Prayer that are often overlooked because all we want to do is focus on the Lord's Prayer itself, and we miss, I think, some important things that Jesus says around it. So first, let me say this. I believe that the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, is to serve as a, a, a model or a pattern, but not necessarily to be recited as a rote prayer. Um, it's the reason why we don't say it around here commonly. Now, I will sometimes get emails from people who have traditional backgrounds, and they will say, why don't you ever say the Lord's Prayer? And my gentle answer is, I don't know that it was ever really intended to just be simply recited. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I've certainly done it, you know, and there are different appropriate times, I think, for the Lord's Prayer to be recited. But as a regular thing, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with reciting it, only to the extent that the constant repetition of it will lose its meaning. And, and it, it just reduces it to just, let's just say this prayer. And there are some of you that could say the Lord's Prayer in your sleep, because that's how well you know it, and we can go through the motions without the emotions. So in general, I think what we have before us is a model of some elements that Jesus says, here's what I think you should include in your prayer life. So that's what I want to highlight with you. And so on the screens, I'll put for you uh, the different elements that, that are included here in what we call the Lord's Prayer. The first is adoration, because he starts that way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, our prayer life should not just be, dear Lord, here's what I need. I mean, how about just starting with some praise and some thanks to the Lord and adoring him and worshiping him? And that's verse 9. And then in verse 10, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, this is an element of submission. This is saying, Lord, your kingdom, uh, your will, uh, may, may your purposes be done 
And so this is submitting to the will of the Father. You know, it, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was crucified, there was this moment of, of, of in terrible, terrible angst where he's praying, and Luke says he's even perspiring droplets of blood because of the anxiety of the moment, the intensity of it all. And in that, in that time, Jesus prays, Father, if there's any way for this to be accomplished, you know, take this cup from me. If there's any other way that this can be accomplished. But then he says, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And so even Jesus being fully God and fully man was constantly deferring to the will of the Father, constantly deferring to the will of the Father, in submission to the Father. And that's what he's calling us to make sure we include in our prayers, a a remembrance of God is sovereign, we are not, humility and submission to him. And then in verse 11, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, and that's the element of provision. God, God invites us to pray that he would meet our needs. Now, not our greeds, there's a difference, but our needs. A lot of times we want to pray for what we want, but they're not really needs. So we got to weigh that carefully and make sure, is this really necessary? Is this a greed or is this a need? God will always meet our needs. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive us our trespasses, our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. This is confession. This is the element of confession. You know, just getting our hearts right with God, making sure our hearts are right with others. And then in verse 13, he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the element of protection. I heard, uh, not too long ago, within this last year, that the, uh, the Catholic uh, Pope um, decided that we could strike that from the Lord's Prayer because he says God doesn't lead us into temptation. Well, first of all, don't mess with God's Word, if I could say so, uh, Your Holiness. Don't ever mention, uh, uh, mess with God's Word. Um, but really, it's not that God leads us into temptation. The rest of it is, but deliver us from the evil one. It's the evil one. It is Satan who leads us into temptation. And this is a prayer of protection. May God protect us from our flesh and from the enemy. And then he ends it by just kind of circling back to adoration for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, Now, Catholics don't say that last line. And I was at a wedding one time. I wasn't performing it. I was just attending. It was at a Catholic church. And um, so they were reciting the Our Father and they got to, you know, near the end and being Protestant as I am, I just continued and and thine is the power and the glory. Oh, no one else is saying it. All right. Forever, you know, and so uh, it was a little awkward, but uh, I finished it for them. So those are the elements. I think it's good for us to include those in our prayer lives, but I want to focus on the bookends around it. If you look in your Bibles at the verse before he launches into the Lord's Prayer, verse 8, and then we'll look at the verse behind it too, but verse 8, therefore do not be like them, the hypocrites, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. I think that's an important thing that often gets overlooked because all we do is focus on the content of the Lord's Prayer itself. But Jesus says here that your Father in heaven knows what you need even before you ask Him. Now, that is both comforting and it is also challenging. It is comforting to know that our Father in heaven, our Daddy in heaven who loves us so much, knows what our needs are even before we ask Him. And that He is always aware Uh, of our deepest concerns and cares and needs, and that he always has our best interest at heart. That's the nature of our Father in heaven. And so that's comforting. God knows what I need even before I ask him, and he cares. 
But it's also challenging in the fact that if God already knows everything I need, then why should I have to pray? Have you ever thought that? It's like, well, okay, well, if God knows everything and he's sovereign anyway, and why even bother praying? And yet Jesus tells us right here, this is, you, you should pray something like this. So you should pray anyway, even though God knows what your needs are in advance. And, and here's the reason why we should still pray, even though God already knows what we need. Because our Father in heaven is waiting for us to ask so that A, it would show our humility, and B, so that it would be an opportunity for him to show his strength in our lives that we would otherwise miss if we didn't ask. See, think about this. If you're really stressed out or going through something really difficult and God just intervened so that you didn't have to experience any of that, how would you ever see him working strong in your life? If he just always stepped in to spare us every adversity, every difficulty, then how would we ever appreciate the nature of our Father to help us, to love us, to care for us, to answer our prayers? How would we ever develop a close abiding relationship with our Father in heaven if he just always spared us the difficulty instead of showing himself strong in the midst of it? And so this is why we pray. James tells us in his epistle, you have not because you ask not. The reason why you don't receive is because you haven't asked your father. See, God stands ready, but he wants to see, A, are we going to humble ourselves enough to ask? And B, are we going to afford him then the opportunity to step in and show himself strong? So this is important why we should pray. There's, and I'm sure many of you can testify to this. There's nothing quite as awesome as when God answers your prayers. And how that bolsters your faith for the next situation. But that we would deny ourselves that opportunity to have our faith bolstered if we never even prayed and then never even saw God's hand move in miraculous, amazing ways. The other thing I want to point out is the, the verse that follows the Lord's Prayer. And this is also sometimes overlooked, but if you look in your Bibles here at verses 14 and 15, these, these are like bookends around the Lord's Prayer. And after he finishes the Lord's Prayer and says, Amen, he says this in verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow, let that sink in. That's tough. That's tough stuff right there. Now listen, of all the elements within the Lord's Prayer that Jesus could have emphasized, he didn't emphasize the adoration part. He didn't emphasize the provision part. He didn't emphasize the protection part. The part that he emphasized within the Lord's Prayer here is this part about forgiveness. And in particular, forgiving others who have wronged you and offended you. Now, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. That is the one element within the Lord's Prayer that Jesus circles back and emphasizes here. He says, I want you to get this one. I want you to forgive men of their trespasses. And if you do, then your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, he says, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, this issue of unforgiveness is one of the greatest hindrances in a Christian's life, in anybody's life. But just talking specifically as Christians here, I have seen unforgiveness and bitterness, figuratively speaking, but literally eat people alive. 
just the just the animosity and and the bitterness and the unforgiveness destroys people and we have with, with we have something that the rest of the world that doesn't know Christ does not have and that is the ability not within ourselves but the god-given ability beyond ourselves to actually forgive people who have wronged us and sinned against us because we do it through what Christ has done for us. Now, here's why this is so staggering when Jesus says here, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you of yours. And, and pe- people have a hard time on, on this one. And, and let me just explain to you what, what I think that he, that he means when he says this here. He said, if, if you decide, I'm not going to forgive somebody who has, who has wronged me, by saying that you refuse to show mercy towards someone who has sinned against you, all right? Despite the fact that God has shown you mercy for having sinned against him, okay? When you refuse to do for others what God has done for you, you are in effect positioning yourself above God. Because you were saying, despite the fact that God has forgiven me of my sins when I sinned against him, I refuse to show mercy to someone who has offended me. You are actually positioning yourself above God. You're saying, I'm not going to do what God does. Because what? Because you have a different standard, a better standard, because you're, you're bigger and better than God? And so in effect, what Jesus is saying is when you position yourself above God because you are reluctant to do for others what he has done for you, then God is not willing to forgive you because you are in effect saying you are superior to God. How can you experience the forgiveness of God if you are saying you were superior to him? And by your actions or by your words, you are basically expressing that. When one refuses to show mercy to somebody who has sinned against them, though God has shown mercy when you have sinned against him, you are removing yourself from that avenue of forgiveness because you are placing yourself above God unwilling to do for others what he has been willing to do for you. Here's a verse that I think is liberating in in when we struggle with this kind of thing about forgiving others. Mark it down, and if you need to, put it on a three-by-five card and put it somewhere you can see it every day, and just really pray that God can help you to to do this. It's Colossians 3.13, okay? It's a simple verse. It's Colossians 3.13. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. That's what it says. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. I run into people from time to time who say to me, if I forgive this person, I'm basically condoning what they did. No, you're not. You're actually freeing yourself from being in bondage to the bitterness and the animosity that rises up in one's heart because you've been wronged or you've been offended. So you have to give them to God. You can't be in bondage to this. It's so destructive. You have to just give them to God. You have to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, and you let God deal with the person. But don't be in bondage to unforgiveness and bitterness. Be liberated. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And then the last category, real quickly, we'll touch on here is the subject of fasting. I'll just talk on this briefly and then let you go home and eat. Um, (laughs) The subject of fasting, just a quick working definition. Fasting is denying ourselves food or anything else that would help us to direct our focus and attention to God. Now, um, 
strictly speaking, fasting in the Bible is giving up food. We've kind of modernized it a little bit, um, and we've, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, but sometimes people want to take a fast from, you know, certain things that can actually preoccupy them and take them away from God. Like, you know, maybe you need to get off of social media for a day. Uh, I know that's like s- sending some of you into trembles, but, um, you know, or, or maybe, you know, just give up your phone for a day or, or um, something that otherwise steals your time and attention away from God. And so, you know, sometimes people can, can give up things. Um, again, you know, talking about some of my Catholic friends, our, our pediatrician, when the kids were little, he was Catholic and right around Lent, um, he, he loved jelly beans and chocolate, and um, my, our doctor. And, but because he was Catholic, when, it was, when Lent came, he had to give up things. You know? And so he's like, I, I have to fast from stuff. I have to give up some stuff. And so if I ever had an appointment with one of our kids around Lent, my doctor would always say to me, he'd bring me into his office. He said, you have to take all these jelly beans and all this chocolate home. I can't have it in my desk. I'm like, yeah, praise God. I'm not Catholic. Praise God. <laughs> take it home take it home, praise God, you know, and so I tried to time it, like, kids, are you sick? I got to go get some jelly beans here, and, uh, but, you know, so you can give up things that might, you know, stand in your way, but strictly speaking, fasting is denying ourselves food. Um, The Puritans called it soul fattening, and I I like that because it's the idea of you deny yourself physical food because you're, you're fattening your soul. You're drawing closer to the Lord. Fasting is mentioned about 65 times in the Bible. There are examples of full fasts or partial fasts. A full fast would be, you know, giving up all food for a certain amount of time. Make, make sure you keep hydrated, though. A partial fast would be, I'm just going to fast breakfast, for example, and, and spend some time praying, or I'm going to fast breakfast and lunch, and then I'll have dinner that night. So you can, you know, there's no, again, this is not a religious ritual where it has to be prescribed in a certain way. There's some freedom and flexibility with it, uh, but there are physical health benefits to fast periodically, as well as spiritual benefits. And uh, I'll just give you some quick typical reasons in the Bible why people would fast. Uh, for example, to repent in Nehemiah chapter 9. They would, they would uh, repent and fast as a part of just kind of, you know, um, humbling themselves before God. Um, there's an example of fasting when, when one would mourn or grieve in the book of Esther chapter 4. Uh, you can fast to intercede for others in Psalm 35. You know, maybe somebody's really heavy on your heart. You want to pray for them and intercede for them. Uh, join it with fasting. Uh, also, you can fast to break the chains of bondage in Isaiah 58. Maybe there's some kind of a sin stronghold and you really just need victory over something and, and there's, there's just some kind of bondage thing. Maybe it's the unforgiveness issue and you really need to start to process being uh, forgiving and so couple it with fasting. Um, There's example in Ezra chapter 8 of fasting to petition God to seek answers. Maybe you're at a crossroads in your life. You have important decisions to make. You need wisdom from God. Maybe spend some time fasting. And then another example is uh, in Acts 14 when they would appoint leaders in the early church, they would fast at the same time. And so these are just a few examples of many, Uh, but it's an important discipline that I think periodically is good for Christians to, to practice. Now, I um, you know, I've known two people in my life who actually did 40-day fasts. I was not one of them. <laughs> no, I'm not that spiritual. I'll uh, just be honest. Um, 
I, you know, and, and I even, you know, three days, four days, then I'm, I'm hitting like a point where I'm just putting anything in a blender. You know what I'm saying to you? Because it's like, well, as long as it's juice. Have you ever juiced Krispy Kreme donuts? Amazing. <laughs> That's not true. Anyway. Um, so some people have even done 40-day fasts. You know, they still drank liquids and they would visit their doctors every once in a while. The, the fast that Jesus did of denying himself food and water, that was a miraculous kind of a fast. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's a discipline that Jesus encourages us to practice once in a while. It kind of it clears up our cloudy heads and allows us to focus better and, and pray and seek his face. Uh, John Wesley once said, quote, some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason and others have utterly disregarded it. I think the modern church tends to be guilty of the latter. But here's my prayer for all of us, that we would be people who are generous, we are giving, we are people who are praying people, and we are people who are fasting people, as, as the need requires, that we might draw closer to the Lord and strengthen the muscles of our soul, if you will, as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for Jesus who taught us these things. We pray in the areas of giving and praying and fasting that I'm sure we all have room to grow and to be stretched and, and to, um, to just... Um, be mature in these areas, Lord, as these spiritual disciplines are important. We want to be people who are generous to the needy. We want to be people who seek your face. There's so much of our world that crowds out our prayer lives. And may we be more diligent to seek you, to pray, and at times to fast, to deny ourselves whatever might hinder our walk with you so that we can really draw near to you Lord, strengthen our hearts. We, we, we receive these things not as religious rituals, but as an opportunity for us to just be strengthened in our spirits. So we thank you, Lord, for your instruction. And now we pray that we would apply it in our own lives. We love you and we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen.